Right, well, hello everybody. It's great to be here. I um, I came down from Edinburgh, which is where I lived last night, to the amazing fact that London was colder than Edinburgh. So <laughs> I do not know what is going on, but uh, something is happening. Anyway, no doubt it will change soon. Um, so I'm really pleased to be here. It's nice to, as Carol said, we go back a long time and... Uh, lots of interesting involvement over lifelong learning. My, I suppose my basis is in community education, really in, in informal, non-formal education. But um, since I started working at a university, then that has kind of become less important. And I've been doing research into both higher education, which I'm going to talk about here, but a lot into adult literacy and numeracy, which is kind of where my heart um, lies. So, and I've been interested in trying to think about different ways in which we can, I don't know, formalize or change or think about um, what's going on across all these lifelong learning centers. So what I'm going to talk about then is, um, first I'm going to start off by talking about Nancy Fraser's framework for social justice, which is how I'm going to conceptualize the talk. Um, and she talks about redistribution. So I'm going to look at the kind of outcomes of higher education participation that are redistributive. And she also talks about recognitive, I think you pronounce it, um, outcomes. I'm going to talk about those two. Um, then I'm going to talk about a case study um, whose findings on the wider benefits of learning are hopefully interesting. And then I'm going to talk about policy implications overall for those outcomes. So, start off with Nancy Fraser's um, framework, which I think is really useful and important. So, she in order to think about injustice as a whole, she talks about um, things being treated both as economic, so that we have to materially redistribute. People have to have bigger in incomes or, or more capital. And um, if anybody has uh, attempted to work wade their way through Thomas Piketty's book um, or at least if you haven't and you've read the headlines which is more what I've done um, you'll know that um, that capital accumulation is one of the reasons why people or the richest are are becoming wealthier and wealthier so capital accumulation is going to be necessary in terms of redistribution it's not just raising incomes is not going to change the world, but at least we need to think about how we are going to improve people's material circumstances if we are going to reach social justice. But that's only one aspect, and it's the aspect that I think we've mostly concentrated on. Um, but um, the other aspect that she talks about is cultural which means that we need to recognize people's identities and cultural diversity. And this seems to me to be 
in a way neglected, although people talk about it a lot. Um, and her argument, and the one that I'm wanting to put across, is that we need to look at <coughs> these aspects both together. And in particular, recognition isn't just um, respecting people, as it were. It's much more about social status because patterns, as she puts it, patterns of disrespect and disesteem are institutionalized. So it's not that we're just, um, it's not a matter of agency, as it were, but it's also a matter of structure, how the structures reinforce particular aspects of people's identities how they recognise a middle-class identity as opposed to a working-class identity, for example. And the major issue in terms of social justice is that some groups are, are subjected to both types of discrimination because they're... This, sorry, is, it, is the bottom bit a bit difficult to see? Sorry. Um, because they're discriminated against in the labour market so that means that people are, are less able to earn money um, but simultaneously the patterns of cultural value privilege some straight traits so if you think about the ways in which um, a kind of middle class accent gives you access to all kinds of, of uh, or even an upper-class accent, and uh, gives you access to particular kinds of jobs, or going to the right kind of university gives you that kind of access. But as I'm going to talk about later, you may not necessarily do that. So it's about the ways in which we are, the, the characteristics that we have are privileged or not, and those things go together. So that's the kind of framework that I'm going to use to look at what's happening in this case study. But first, I want to just say a little bit about education and identity. So the injustices that Fraser is outlining operate at the individual level because people incorporate these negative discourses um, we're going to come on to, Anne's going to talk about um, later on, about the, the ways in which being older can be disrespected. Um, so we incorporate negative discourses about our, our abilities to learn and we come to see ourselves as deficient rather than focusing on the disabling structures. So a lot of the work that Carol's been involved in, for example, and myself for that matter, have been about how in terms of race or gender or disability, all those characteristics tend to be incorporated. And rather than thinking that it's the world that's disabling us, we, can, we tend to think of ourselves as deficient because that's the only way we can kind of tend to think about ourselves. So a decision to engage in education is mediated by individual subjectivities. 
So learning's not only about encouraging new understandings, you know, as we say about higher education, it's all about the knowledge that we're gaining, but it's not only about that. Um, and it's not only about those practices that we learn to engage in, like how to write that essay or how to do well in exams or whatever, but it's also about changes in people's identity. And I think particularly in lifelong learning, that is a particularly important aspect when you ever ask people about what's, how they feel about their experiences, then they tend to talk about those identity changes um, first. Um, and the material changes seem to come second. And here's a nice little diagram, I think. Sorry about the horrible colour. <laughs> I tried to make it a lovely pink, but I couldn't for some reason. <laughs> so um, it's a kind of pea green, isn't it, of which, um, anyway, imagine it's pink, if you, if you don't mind, <laughs> or some colour that you really like. Um, so this is from um, a UNESCO public publication, um, which is about enabling learning. But the first thing to think about is that society is key in terms of how we're going to think about learning because it's what society values and expects. Um, so if, as Carol was pointing out at the very beginning, we're in a society that thinks that lifelong learning is an excellent thing to do, which seems to not be such a good idea at the moment, um, then the societal view that people are going to learn throughout their lives might dominate and it might mean that that's a kind of something that we're really going to privilege or they, it, the dominant idea in society um, might be that it's all about employability so as long as people have got jobs of any kind they can earn money then that's like the key thing so whatever we're going to do is framed by the way that the society we live and work in frames those ideas. So within that frame, we need to think about um, the learning environment. Um, so if there's a policy that at least 50% of people should go into higher education, then we need to think about how welcoming is the learning environment? Is it can, are you able to see that it's something for people like me or does it seem like an alien kind of environment that you can't, you can't move in? Um, and if the learning environment works, how accessible is it? I mean, accessible in your head as well as accessible in that there are there are policies that enable you to actually get there. And also you need to think about the opportunities that are available. So all of these things are, are about um, how you perceive them clearly, as well as what might be out there. So you have to think that that's accessible to you you have to think that those opportunities are available to you. The learning environment needs to be appropriate, but it all needs to be uh, 
society needs to see that it's there for you and you need to see that too okay so um, I suppose an example is that the cost of part-time education now which is very high um, also a very interesting thing is that as I'm sure you know in Scotland there are no fees for for universities which you would think wouldn't you would be um, a way of increasing participation but it's not in fact in Scotland fewer people now from the um, well disadvantaged classes if I could put it that way um, go to university and the reason for that is because in order to offer free higher education the numbers of places available are capped so fewer people overall and of course universities are looking at what and this particularly impacts on young people um, in general and in particular young people from rural areas because they're they don't have the qualifications or if they haven't got much money leaving your rural area to go and live in a in a city is very expensive and Scotland offers far fewer bursaries than England so I think it's an extremely good example of the rhetoric about accessibility and the actuality of accessibility so it's not so we have to really be careful about the discourses that are punted about what enables learning and participation in universities and I think um, my view personal is that uh, we've got strong rhetoric that enables the middle classes to exercise their privileges in ways that they can disguise as only being about um, getting their children or indeed themselves into universities so anyway that's an aside because um, I feel really um, rather exercised by this issue at the moment because lots of um, things are going on in Scotland that um, are unfair and disadvantaging people okay so having now let's move into what the literature tells us about the redistributive outcomes of higher education and then I'll come on to the recognitive ones so having a degree is a key factor in social mobility in the UK as a whole there's it's very well um, attested to um, it brings greater earnings over the, the life course and that's why we can justify at the moment people getting into large debts or or having loans that eventually will need to be paid back because in the end it's all going to work out however the earnings of graduates vary by subject um, interestingly the more vocational the subject the the lower the earnings well except of course for the professions of medicine law and so on but not teaching um, they also vary by socio-economic background so if you're already already privileged you're going to carry on being more privileged um, by race by gender 
and by institution attended. So it is true that participating in university brings is a key factor in social mobility, but some people are less mobile than others. Okay, and if I can use that term non-traditional in, in inverted commerce, um, they continue to be disadvantaged in the graduate labour market due to the more limited ability to deploy the social and cultural capital which enables them to know the rules of the game. And there's been some very interesting uh, research led by Anne-Marie Bathmaker um, who's been comparing middle class and working class students attending Bristol University and the University of the West of England uh, in detail about how people deploy their social and cultural capital, for example, to get internships that um, means you don't earn any money, but you've got financial family, financial help to do that. The people are very good at developing CVs and so on. So there are redistributive outcomes, but they are mediated as always by these other issues. Um, and in terms of the recognitive outcomes, research says um, that being recognised as capable of learning by significant <coughs> others and oneself results in changes in self-esteem, identity and self-sense of control. So people may be only earning a bit more, let's say, but they've got an awful lot more out of university than that and that or higher education. And this leads not only to individual changes, but to intergenerational changes, because the whole household benefits from having people's, their cultural values and practices recognised and respected. So in terms of recognition then, there's the research or the literature shows that there's quite a lot going on there. And we need to take account of both these things is the argument I want to keep on presenting. Right. So just now then to talk about the little case study I'm going to talk about. So um, it's a follow-up study of people that entered a Russell Group University in 2004. And I'm, I'm mentioning the Russell Group because of this issue about institution attended makes a big difference to people's outcomes. So there was an original cohort of 45, 15 were interviewed by telephone and asked to reflect back or on their experiences over the preceding 10 years. So, what did they say about the wider benefits of learning that they benefited from? So, the first thing, or the one really interesting thing, was people talked about the knowledge bug, what they got. So, there was a continued commitment for participants to had to learning, and almost all of them had engaged in some form of learning after they finished their degree. They'd outlined how the degree had led to changes in their identities and often articulated those about the ability to, to think critically. And um, 
many of them were involved in, uh, were going on to work in teaching or social work, um, and being able to think critically and reflectively was absolutely, I was just having a conversation with Alan before I started about some of the issues that are often raised uh, in terms of teacher education when the, 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 the rush to try to you know, acquire the skills and understanding that you need sometimes drive out the ability to think critically, to question how come um, there are different children have different experiences in your classroom. So I think this is an absolutely crucial thing. And they were talking, a lot of them were talking about, um, you know, questioning what was going on in their workplace. So I thought that was it's a fantastic outcome, although difficult, of course. I mean, to be questioning all the time is not an easy way to live, is it? <laughs> you, you would sometimes it's nice to be able to kind of relax and go with the flow, as it were. And people talked about having um, opening their minds, um, thinking and questioning um, everything, and. Um, a nice quote, I think there's been a lot of changes in my thinking over the years based on all the courses that I've done. The course has made me more reflective in practice, in work and personally. And, you know, really it was a kind of a really transformative kind of experience that she went through. And which brings me neatly onto the changing selves um, and the redistributive type. Um, outcomes. Getting a degree fills you with confidence. Um, this, apart from having a family, getting a degree is probably the best feeling in the world. It also got me thinking a bit wider and about the bigger picture. Um, so people were talking about their their the benefits in their working lives and their personal circumstances, uh, confidence and a belief in their abilities. And lots of people commented on the their ability to inspire their children. So this one says, I think for my son, it certainly had a positive impact on him. And I want to, I want, and to want to go there to the university. And he was very proud that his mum had been to university when a lot of his friends' mums hadn't. So that that kind of, but often. You think about it the other way. I was just reading something recently where, where they were talking about mature students that sometimes their children are, are helping them, but this is completely the other way around. Um, that uh, it's, in, it's intergenerational and really inspiring. However, what does that tell us about policy implications in terms of the... So, um, well, we've where in terms of the society round about our experiences at the moment we've got this discourse of performativity um, and it focuses on what is accessible to measure so universities tend to get obsessed on redistributive rather than recognitive outcomes so the teaching excellence framework which i guess most people are grappling with or familiar with if not um, um, it's narrow measure for student outcomes focuses on employment so it 
its outcome is students achieve their educational and professional goals, in particular progression to further study or highly skilled employment. So it's there, there's this, well, it could be redistributive if, but universities are, well, if I think about Huddersfield University, for example, it's, it's hinterland and, you know, quite a high percentage of the students are very local, is that uh, a hinterland of very high unemployment and not that many highly skilled jobs. So to judge Huddersfield, let's say compared with Edinburgh, which is a very affluent city surrounded by, you know, with lots of jobs, how can you compare these two and say that, so it's not a distance traveled, it's not a, it, it's an outcome that is unfairly measured as well as um, being focused on the redistributive as aspects. Um, and also, the focus is on the individual and is about supporting the aspirations and achievements of students from a diversity of, of backgrounds. So again, it's about the student's aspirations somehow. So it's, it's focusing down on their aspirations, which might be faulty, um, and rather than considering what might be structural impediments to employment. But the case study I've just been talking about shows the importance of being recognised culturally. Um, and it's intimately tied up with employment. So these two aspects can't be separated. You can't think about one without the other. But again, the TEF talks about inquiring skills, knowledge and attributes that are valued by employers, not valued by you or your family or your community. Um, and that certainly might not be the kind of life enhancing change that many students seek. So we, I think we've got a real issue here about measurement through the TEF in terms of what universities are expect higher education in general is expected to achieve and how we might get there. Yep. So in conclusion then, I think that a key problem of the current approach to audit and measurement is that it drives out what is difficult to measure and so narrows down the outcomes that we might expect to achieve. I think instead we should be much more focused on recognition and respect as these often get ignored in a world dominated by a discourse that assumes that the economic is everything. So, to bring about change, which I would always like to do, I think we can, I always want to aspire to something that's kind of transformative and wonderful, even if we don't get there. But aspiration is important in that, in this sense. Um, so we should focus on both the redistribution and recognition as in equally important outcomes of participation in higher education. So that's um, so. This is my, these are 
all the references which are beyond the website. So these are the references that I drew from the uh, to talk about the different outcomes. And it's got uh, the Christie paper is our paper about the case study, in case you're interested in it. And these are my contact details if anybody wants to get in touch with me. So thank you very much. Thank you.